John, one of the three tri-hosts of the Combing the Stacks podcast, along with my good friends, Josh and Matt, hosts with hosts with the most, right? Or host, I guess not hostesses with the mostesses, but it's a good crew right here. And it's already been a little bit of a punchy night as we've had a little false starts here getting started to the show. Not that you would know because you're getting the final product of the show, as always, we love having you aboard for the Coming to Stacks podcast. We're going to be doing a cold listen hot take of five albums this week, a more bite-sized show as opposed to our normal seven or eight albums per show. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the format here in a second, but as always, I like to check in with uh, the other two gentlemen with whom I share this space. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great. Did you guys see that Pitchfork article today where they like re- re-rate album reviews and go back and change what they would what they would rate them now 
I d- no. I d- how far how far back are they going? Um, I mean, it's, I don't know how far the pitchfork goes back in publication, but since oh. they've their inception, anyway, it's an interesting look at a. Uh, at reviewing and how it's all arbitrary and it can change <laughs> at any point. Like just like our like, show. Have they re-envisioned like uh, the Limp Biscuit uh, hot dog flavored water album to be now because it's of cultural consequence or do they not go quite that far? No, they picked 15 albums. I don't know what their criteria was. I just kind of scrolled through. But... Was albums it that they... they screwed up. I'm looking was at it them ones now. they like shit all over and then they decided that they shouldn't have or some, some, yeah, some of them are like that yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then some of them oh actually they're going down so I think they did like half half like you know ones we should have rated higher half we should have rated lower that type of maybe. so just just for the sake of context for this for our listeners guys let's give one on each list just for a think piece since we haven't truly read it yet except for Matt, well, josh there's apparently. two daft punks on here okay <laughs> that they over or under ranked both one of each. Uh, so oh, Discovery okay. from go. 2001 was originally ranked six point or rated as a 6.4. Mm-hmm. And now they're saying it's a 10. Whoa. 10. Wow. It's perfect. Daft Punk did not do anything wrong on that record now. Mm. Um, when are we covering then, Daft Punk? 2025? Well, that one's from 2001. <laughs> so as yeah. a result, we got a little while to go before that. And then Random Access Memories from 2013 was originally an 8.8. And now it's a 6.8. Give us a non-Daft Punk uh, one on there, because you can't take both spots. So. Wow. Liz Fair self-titled Liz Fair from 2003 went from a 0.0 to a 6.0. That's a pretty big jump. Mm. Yeah. That's I the mean, one where she became like a pop star, right? Yes, I believe yeah, so. And, yeah. Yeah. And um, artists I mean, the cover alone more, should be a 10. Yeah, some of these aren't that big of a deal. Like like The Strokes' Room on Fire was from, went from 8.0 to 9.2. Yeah, that's a good album. We got a lot of time before we cover that. So that's yeah. true. Assume they're not reappraising uh, 70s albums like we are here. No, right? no, no, no. Well, we're yeah, going to so. go right into the the killer with no filler, Matt. Does that work for you? That was yeah. a Sum 41 album, I think, right? All we killer, no filler. We mentioned them before, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would yep. you rate that album, John, uh, on your scale? I never gave it an initial ranking, so I'm going to refrain from giving it a final ranking right here. But I, I give it a, I enjoyed that. I don't necessarily okay. have a zero to ten scale. Right, right in there. the middle. Maybe I'll throw Solid it on a bonus five. episode, and then three and a half years from now, say, <laughs> "Well, Josh, remember that in passing we mentioned that in the segment. Uh, I put this on here just so I could evaluate this for posterity. So, a true Easter egg for our listeners. Nice of radio listening. All right, before we get going, Matt, could you run the five albums that we're going to be covering this week? Yeah, we're going to be starting off with uh, Linda Rodstadt with "Heart Like a Wheel," um, coming from 1974. Muddy Waters follows that with his album Hard Again from 1977. Fela Kuti and Africa 70 with 1975's Expensive Shit. Then we're going to be doing Neil Young's Tonight the Night from 1975. And lastly, we are going to be covering Rock Bottom by Robert Wyatt uh, from 1974. All right. An interesting crew of albums. Guys, are you ready for me to set the clock for the completely arbitrary 15 minutes that we rarely ever hit one way or the other for these time time limits? Plus or minus two minutes, sure. 
or, plus, or plus 28 <laughs> or 28 or 28 or under three, depending on how we feel about the album. But yeah. we're just going to roll with it. I'm going to set the clock just for the sake of appearances. Um, how cold this and hot take works is we are not going to do the bio that we normally do on the full episodes. What we do instead is we listen to an album once and we give instantaneous reaction without the context of having done the research. And what it often leads to is us going backwards and finding out information um, and then bringing that in and cleaning the stack segments and also just doing our own exploration. So it's a little bit of a different format. As a result, you get a little bit more of a passionate, I would say at times, review because it's, it's much more in the moment than um, the ones where we listen to it several times in the regular show. Um, so it's it's provided some real moments for us, and uh, I'm excited to hear uh, these guys' takes on some of the albums. So without further ado, Matt, our first album, go ahead and run the numbers, and then we'll give the floor to uh, Josh for the first um, take, so yep. to speak. Of this so this album. is the highest-ranked album from on Best Ever Albums in number 910 in the 1970s. This is, again, Heart Like a Wheel. Uh, by Linda Ronstadt. And this is Linda Ronstadt's highest, right? That's what you Correct. Well, no, it's idea. the high, well, the albums that we're covering tonight. This is the, um, I'm sorry, it's the oh, highest is... number. It's the lowest okay. ranked album. It's number 910 of the 1970s. Gotcha. So we're starting okay. low and going high. My gotcha. bad. Good. Yeah, I screw those up. Some high, low, It's I get confused. Um, it was ranked 83 in 1974, an overall rank of 5,231. However, in Rolling Stone, it did make their list at number 490. There you go. So just sneaking in. Yep. All right, Josh. Thoughts on Linda Ronstadt, who I actually read this week was the highest, I believe, the highest selling female artist of the 1970s. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I really enjoyed this album. This is probably my favorite of the batch this week of the five. And my main takeaway is that she is kind of like the next generation of country. A female country artists that we that we've talked about um, I was trying to think of when the last time we covered a pure country album or at least a female artist and it was probably Dolly Parton and and uh, Loretta, Loretta Lynn. Lynn right yeah I think and so I feel like this is kind of a a a newer version of that it's it's definitely country but she's she's got a great voice and she incorporates some rock into it and i think she is she's not afraid to incorporate some harmonizing with other um female backup singers and even another um a, a male singer at one point i think on uh, maybe heart like a wheel the title track and um or faithless love i can't remember there's a duet on one and and backup singer on another and um it also has got that, even though it's like country and it's got some rock elements, it's also got a little 70s feel to it. I got like a Stevie Nicks vibe from her in terms of voice um, and maybe the Eagles, something like that. I, I feel like she's in, in good company with those people. She probably toured with them at some point, I imagine. And um, yeah, it, it feels very much like a um, kind of a crossover hit. I feel like even though it's country, it probably, I mean, if she was the biggest artist of female artist of the seventies, then it, it was definitely a crossover. I, I feel like she has, um, appeal across, uh, genres and yeah. And the main thing is that I really enjoyed her voice and she's got this, this emotion that comes through in her singing. Um, she's got sadness at times and she's got, um, happiness. She's got some great lyrics too. Uh, 
like um, uh, unwilling. She's got uh, one about in the chorus. She said she wants weed, whites, and wine. Um, I thought that was a, that was a funny line. But yeah, it's it's like really solid uh, country rock, in my opinion. Okay, that's a start for it. Matt, want to continue with your thoughts? Yeah, so this was a surprise for me. Um, there are several Easter eggs in here um, for me because I, I, I recognize three of them for easy. You know, You're No Good started off right away, and I, mm-hmm. I'm like, I know that song. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, it kind of just, this whole album, I was like, well, I know I've, I've, I've heard of Linda Ronstadt for, for years. I didn't really know any of her songs. I couldn't have told you a Linda Ronstadt song. I couldn't have told yeah. you what genre she was. So the fact that this is a mostly country sounding album was a little surprising to me. I thought, you know, um, I didn't really find You're No Good to be kind of a country song, but the second track, It Doesn't Matter Anymore. I was like, okay, it sounds sounds like country, but they don't really have country instruments going on. And then halfway through the slide guitar comes in. I'm like, okay, there you go. And then it just <laughs> takes off from there yeah. um, with some banjo and a lot of other, you know, and some Violin, songs in here. I think. Yeah, yeah, and some fiddle. songs in here are very country, like mm-hmm. full-blown Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton-type country. Um, so I agree with you, Josh. There's a little bit of a, of a mixture, a little crossover here as well. Um, but uh, I was really I was really psyched to hear um, When Will I Be Loved. I'm, that's a great song that I've yeah. known for years. I, it's one of those songs that I've always known but never really know, knew who did it or where it was from or anything like that. But that was just a very bouncy, catchy, upbeat, fun song. Um isn't that a and cover I knew, though too? I thought I think they're all covers. I think well. Oh really? Okay. But I I, I did do so after because there was enough in here to keep me um to 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 pique my curiosity. So I did mm-hmm. look a little bit. But yeah, all these songs. I don't think she wrote any of these. Um, these oh. are all of the other songwriters that are doing this. Um, and that song, I think the When Will I Be Loved is an Everly Brothers song, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah, I wrote down Buddy what, Holly, but. Yeah, that makes sense. Everly, yeah, Brothers. but she mm-hmm. made it famous. Like her, this version is the is the most well known or best selling version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew the song "Willin." That was a big surprise for me because I knew that from an obscure artist named Richard Schindel, whose um, live album "The Courier" from like two thousand two. I've I've known for many years. My brother was bit big into that, and so he burned me a copy. And I that's a great like acoustic folk Americana type uh, live mm-hmm. recording, and um and he does a version of that. So she starts playing it, and I'm going, this sounds like that Richard Schindel, and it's the exact same song. So I'm like, oh, I love this song. So yeah. So I like this album mo- mainly for those reasons. It was just like you know a couple songs peppered in here that um i was surprised at so that was it's kind of it's kind of cool to you know trace trace some of these songs back to 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 you know some a specific person or a specific album um but yeah i agree with you josh i think her voice is fantastic uh, there's there's some great moments in here it's just a really crisp lush uh really and in some sometimes powerful voice that's that's very mm-hmm. uh you know very easy to listen to and, um, you know, I felt like, I don't know, if, I don't, I didn't really get a good look at the, the background singers or anything like that, but this sounds like James Taylor's might be, might be having a part in this somewhere, um, mm. like singing it. If he doesn't, there's a dudes on here that sound like him, but, um, yeah, that last track in particular, um, which is, it's, it is a James Taylor song. Um, I did see that he did write that. Um, but it is, I, I was thinking, you know, this sounds like that Laurel Canyon, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Carol yeah. King type stuff. That was a very, yeah. you know, kind of folk rock, uh, type song. So, um, I think the only song on here that I was kind of like, eh, on was the title track, Heart Like a Wheel. It was a little, that dramatic ballad with a string quartet. It was okay. It was kind of pretty, but it wasn't, um, as, 
I don't know, as uh, it didn't stand out to me as much as a lot of the other songs did. So, um, so yeah, I was surprised. I didn't know what I didn't. I wasn't expecting this country type stuff that was that that she came with, but um, or the songs that I knew already. But uh, I liked it. It was a it was a good listen. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, um, I must be honest. Linda Ronstadt's one of these names that I, I'm gonna pull like a mat where I am aware of her outside of the context of what we're talking about her tonight. Um, when I think of historically Linda Ronstadt, I, I first thing I thought was I don't know much of her work. Uh, yeah. I know you're no good because I think that's omnipresent, right? So like mm. that's the first thing I think of like that. The second thing is I think of all those duets she did in the 80s, like the American Tale song and that I don't know <laughs> much, but I know I love you like oh, okay. song with, uh, is it like? Pivo that was a Neville Bryson brothers, wasn't or it? Neville. Yeah, I mean, there's like one with like the. She was with all those like random like James Ingram. I think was one of them, and was it? Yeah, it was a Neville brother. I think you're right. I don't know Aaron, maybe Neville. And then yeah, yeah. The, like Pebo. Like she made a lot of those things. And then I also always know that um, Linda Ron. Like, and I hate how like this goes back to Carly Simon too. How a lot of the female artists of the 70s and 80s were defined by who they dated, which I don't want to go in that. But I I always thought it was odd that she dated um, Jerry Brown when he was the governor of California yeah. mm-hmm. and then dated there was engaged to George Lucas, I think, if I remember. So I huh. knew her more as a like celebrity hmm. as much as anything. So right. I was actually really interested to hear what this album was going to sound like. So You're No Good came on at the beginning. I'm like, well, that makes sense. That's the clear hit. And then the rest of the album happened, and I said, "Wow, I'm listening to a country album." Yeah. Like, and I started saying, "This is interesting because this is, in many ways, like what would happen if you took a country album and you gave it like LA production." And that's what I thought of mm-hmm. with this album. Mm-hmm. It was like if you take the Eagles' sort of sound and production, and it makes sense because I want to say she's from Arizona, if I remember correctly, Linda Ronstadt. And so she's, and I know she was in that California area, right? A lot with those, you know, the James Taylor and the Eagles and uh, who else? Jackson Brown and all those people that were out there. Um, I was not as high on this album as you guys were. It Hmm. was, um, it just didn't punch buttons for me. It felt like very much a 70s album. And in the way when we talk about their 70s albums in a good way and then 70s albums that kind of don't transcend. it had a, uh, it had both a throwback feel, and uh, I guess modern as of '74 feel, but I didn't yeah. feel that it had legs after that era, and that's a little bit as I go through these albums, I I do feel the ones that stand out to me are the ones that have a little bit of legs outside of the decade. Um, when something is grounded in the decade, it's always harder for me in some ways to appreciate it, if that makes sense. Um, Especially when it sounds very much of a specific time. Now, if it doesn't last to today, that's okay. But if it doesn't have legs, in my opinion, outside of maybe two or three years afterwards, um, and I'll be interested to see as we keep listening in the 70s where it goes. But um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Linda Ronstadt's singing voice is exceptional. I mean, that's the number one thing she has going for her. I always felt that she... She is akin to Pat Benatar, another person who just has pipes, right? And very versatile pipes and can easily delve into blue-eyed soul if need be and big pop ballads and stuff. Um, so I, I 
always felt that I think Pat Benatar was like evolutionary Linda Ronstadt, but Pat Benatar kind of carved out a different, more rock and roll niche. Yeah. And I guess Linda Ronstadt's is more of like a country niche, unless this is unrepresentative of the rest of her work. Um, and it's interesting because there's a huge gap between this and the stuff that I was aware of her, which was big, hmm. big, you know, duets from the late 80s, which is, yeah. you know, a lifetime after this. So that's kind of my overall takeaway. It's pretty boilerplate lyrics. It's a, it's a lot about love and heartbreak and yep. um, things along those lines. It I can understand why this sold, why mm-hmm. You're No Good would sell a ton of albums because it's or, or single single CDs or mm-hmm. I guess it wouldn't be CDs. It would be singles, right? Or 45s. Like 45s. There we go. Um, because it's tailor-made to be played on the radio, even in length. Um, but yeah, it just didn't connect for i wouldn't say i I didn't dislike the album but nothing about it jumped out beyond just the inoffensively pleasant would be how i would describe it Hmm. that's probably why it sold so well (laughs) yeah i mean maybe yeah that's that's a good point Mm -hmm. yeah and uh it looks like the eagles did make an appearance looks like uh glenn fry don henley and um the uh their timothy b schmidt the bass player they all played on the last track um oh okay well it sounds like an eagle song yeah the 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 sound of it the texture of it yeah and it's written by james taylor but james taylor is not he doesn't wikipedia doesn't have him playing on here oh wait Um, the eagles played it and james taylor wow that's correct quite the correct of yeah yep and uh interesting i was just looked up willin because i was interested like where that song come from that song was written by someone named lowell george who i don't remember Mm -hmm. covering him but he was a former member of the mothers of invention Hmm, um and went on to form the band little feet which is where he wrote the song willin so that's where that came from actually so um that was interesting okay little feet is was like they are a country band too right I, I don't know. Oh, okay. I'm not super familiar with their work, to be quite honest. They're like so. a 70s band, I feel like. Yeah. That's like firmly of the decade, maybe. But it's interesting that somebody from like the Mothers of Invention with Frank Zappa yeah. would go on to do a country. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I may- saw when I did a little bit of things that actually Linda Ronstadt, they mentioned that she toured with Toots and the My Talls at one hmm. part, which would be a very wow. interesting okay. show. Hmm. Um so yes, yeah, she kind of was of the era. It's it's always interesting to me when you have an artist that sells a ton of albums and then sort of like 20 years later, they're not really brought up. I, I'm yeah, trying to think yeah. of like who, and I don't mean to drag it into like a frame of reference for us, but like who would be the equivalent of that for us, you know, having grown up in the 90s, right? Who would be the equivalent? You don't hear a lot about Janet Jackson anymore. Right. Uh, uh, Paula Abdul, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'm trying to think of female artists. People well, that Janet had Jackson a... did. She just was inducted. In, I mean, are you talking about recent stuff? Because she was in the well, rock. Linda Ronstadt was indu- inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I'm just saying, you like by the time the '90s came, right? Was anyone even referring to Linda Ronstadt in anything? Right? It was sort of like. I just remember hearing. I remember. Uh, I just remember hearing her on the periphery. Like I think Howard. I think she had beef with Howard Stern. So I yeah. heard like him talk about her. But like musically, no, I don't remember. Well, it's kind of like Janet Jackson now, right? Like you may hear about her on the periphery, but she's yep. not really. It's not like Madonna or something where they're yeah. still being discussed and you know we're Prince, right? Where they're in the '80s or '90s, but they carried mm-hmm. over. I, it's just weird to me when somebody sells that many albums yeah. and then sort of. 
it's it's you yeah, have to remind yourself, oh wow yeah they're they're very much like ephemeral a culture in a lot of ways is ephemeral that way right people move on and and some people don't always you know sell they sell a ton at that time but not they well, don't have a lasting always... impact there's always people that like have one album that sells a ton. So if we go nineties, right, there's like Hootie and the Blowfish and Ace of Base. They have this one album, but then it's kind of like, okay, that album has even Alanis yeah. Morissette. Right. And then it's, they did music, but that's kind of what they're known for. But to be the highest selling artist of the decade. And you know, the funny thing is, you know, who number two is of the decade could actually be another artist. Donna Carol Summer. King. Donna um, Summer. Yeah, I keep thinking like, Carol King, but Carol King just had the one album. Just had the one album, right? Yeah. So that's that's another good example, though, of that first group, right? You have this one album that sells a ton. Yeah. But Donna Summer is another one that kept selling albums for most of the back end of the seventies, but you never really hear about her. What about Mariah Carey? She's, she's still, still talked about a lot. I think is she's she? still with I, music, I, or I, I always think it's like more tabloid stuff. Yeah, like per, she's more of a personality now too. But if you were to go to like a 15 year old now they're gonna know who mariah carey is. that's kind of i guess what my litmus test is like oh what would a 15 year old still okay. no like maybe not know their music but like oh i know that person right. i think 15 year old me if you had said do you know who linda ronstadt is i would have been like uh i yeah. think like you know and and it's like when you're the highest selling female artist of the 70s it's just weird that you can yeah because like who who would we guess would be the highest selling yeah, artist we, of the, we'd have to male artist of the 70s yeah billy joel probably elton right john. would be my guess elton john or billy joel would be my guess and we're cert 15 year old me would have known who both of them were but we'd have to do to make that a fair comparison we'd have to do like 40 years from seven from 94 or something we'd have to wait and right. see what lasts. but I, i'm saying 15 year old me yeah like would have but would have pretty right. much been 20 years later, right? It would 21, it would have been after this. Hmm. So, and by that time, so it really, no, it would be, okay, so going back, so somebody from 1999 who is massive, so who's selling a ton of albums? Backstreet Boys, I mean, they still are known enough that people would. It'd probably be like Dave Matthews Band, really. Yeah. Or something. Okay. Something like that, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting comparison, but I have to point a little bit for me, thumbs down on this one. Not mm. true down, just a little bit leaning down. Didn't so, do I mean, that's just, I would just say the thing I just, I don't, to me, I don't think that this sounds t terribly dated. Like, I didn't no. get a feeling walking away from this going like, wow, this is a big 70s album. You know, I actually kind of, I was neutral on that. I, I didn't really find myself thinking about you know, how it aged or how it didn't age. I just, it was just, it, it was almost, so I guess in that sense it didn't age because it didn't jump out at me. So I'm not surprised that, you, you know, it didn't really do a whole lot for you. I think it's a, it's a relatively simple album. Um, but uh, I'm a little surprised that you, that you were like honing in on, wow, it sounds seventies. Cause I didn't really, I didn't pick up on that as much on my end. Well, I, I would say that country is such a like small slice of the pie that we end up covering despite, you know, going through the decades as the genre as a whole that um i mean how how does country change through the decades maybe that's part of its appeal is that it's not well, like changing that much and that's why people like but it. this is not let's let's be very honest with this there's country and then there's like the mainstream rock interpretation of country so there's a whole other country that i, I don't sure. think that nashville folks are viewing linda ronstadt as 
like a true country artist. She's oh, more really? like I mean, how it... the birds, I, I think the birds, you know, did Sweetheart of the Rodeo and delved into it or Graham Parsons or the people that like dabble in country. But I don't think that when they're talking about like the Nashville Grand Old Opry mm -hmm. country that Linda Ronstadt, like she's sort of like a California representation yeah. of country, mm -hmm. I think is, is kind of like Chris Christopherson is, it, there's a lot of those like country ish. Yeah. Artists. If that, at least that's my interpretation. Maybe, but maybe she does have more of a, a lasting impact in, in country circles. I don't know. Perhaps. Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure. I was just surprised. I'm like, wow, I didn't know she was a country artist. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah um, I didn't so, either. I got to be and honest. It's a good, yeah. And it's a good question, John. Is, is this, is this representative of her stuff in the seventies or is this just kind of like a, like dipping her toe in the water? So, you know, I'm sure there's people out there if they're if anybody's listening or well more learned about her than us that are going to be like these guys are idiots like like how do, yeah you well know, right yeah. Like, I don't know. you know so I and I always but. welcome people to come in and blow us up on comments and say here's why you're idiots and like make a case yeah. because I love to hear people that are passionate make their case for it because you know, at the end of the day it's just three people's opinions and so mm -hmm. we're not sitting here like it's you know a tablet and yeah. uh, written well, in stone this... yeah. This is her highest ranked album on best ever albums. And I believe it's the only one that made Rolling Stone. So um, mm -hmm. seems like it's her most highly regarded record, but okay. I liked it. Pleasantly surprised on my end. Yeah, same. There we go. Cool. Okay. Well, Matt's going to run the numbers for our second album. And yep. actually then he's going to take the floor directly afterwards uh, to start okay. the segment. So Matt, it's all right. you. Yeah, so this album, this is uh, Muddy Waters with his 1977 release, Hard Again. Um, it comes in at number 767 on Best Ever Albums, number 68 in 1977, number 4,350 of all time, and it is not on Rolling Stone's list. Um, and John, you said you wanted a you you kind of wanted, or was this on the 1,001 albums we need to listen this to? This was on the yeah, 1,001 okay. albums list two before we die, and I figured right. we we hadn't talked Muddy Waters, so I figured right. it was a good guy to talk about. So so yeah, um, so I didn't I knew Muddy Waters' name, and that was about it. And um, I, I honestly don't have much of a take on this record <laughs> other than I mean, this is a yeah. it's a straight up blues rock like old school blues rock and roll album um and it's it's it, it's in that lane and it stays in that lane there's some there is some variation but i don't listen to this stuff enough to really like be able to develop a ton of cogent thoughts on it i do like it i mean it's like the basis and the foundation <laughs> right. of, of rock and roll and and like many popular forms of music the one song i did kind of recognize was manish boy um i i think i i don't know it's one of those songs in the blues, you know, because sometimes I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, did I actually hear this actual song or did I just hear other bands do parts of this song in like a blues? Or did you blues... just hear that guitar lick somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, the man part, because he's he, it's yeah. called Manish Boy. He keeps saying, I'm a man, I'm a, and, you know, like I've heard that mm. in other places before, but I don't know if that was, if when I've heard it in other places, if it's like an homage to it, like kind of like a, that a little snippet of it or they actually did the song but a lot of this stuff is just straight up blues and it's um it's it's good um some of it some of the songs run a bit long for me um i thought the bus driver was a good example of that and i thought mm -hmm. the end of a man at manage boy i think the first two songs are kind of a little repetitive and long um but uh 
I, I like the I like the harmonica. The, he does the harmonica in there in, in a couple of songs, and I like that addition to it. Um, I thought that I can't be satisfied was an interesting song. It's kind of like a little bit of a skiffle. I don't know. If it sounds like it's. It seems to me like somebody might be playing the washboard on that. It's kind of you know. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more of a stripped down song with, you know, very light percussion. Maybe they're just hitting the hi hat or whatever, but there's not really full drums in that song. Um, and uh, I think the musicianship is great. I think you know. It's it's it's. I think that this would be a fun band to see live and a fun artist to see live at, you know, this is one of those, I I don't know many people would like listen to be like, wow, this is terrible. Or this, I, this just doesn't do it for me. I think that this is a, this is great live music. And it's, again, it's, it's it's the foundation of, of a lot of music that we all know and love. So, um, so it's, it's good to be familiar with this. It's good to listen to this stuff from time to time. But again, this is not my, this is not my go-to genre. It, it, It does, it does get a little bit, I don't want to say boring because it's not boring, but it just doesn't it doesn't have enough variety for me um, for me to sustain listening to this, uh, you know, with multiple artists, you know, uh, frequently because um, I do feel like it's the same thing. You know, like there's a song on here that I was like, that sounds exactly like, you know, um, Dylan's uh, was it Leopard's not Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. What was it? Um, Le- yeah, it was Leopard Skin. Yeah, Jealous Hearted Man. It sounds like the exact same riff from Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat from mm-hmm. Bob Dylan on Blonde on Blonde. And I'll, I'm not saying he ripped off Bob Dylan. I mean, Bob Dylan was clearly ripping off like, you know, blues. But it's the, it's the same exact song, just with different lyrics and yeah. with a different little slightly different style. So um, so I like it, but it's, it's not something that I listen to. I'm going to listen to a whole lot. It's just not I'm not interested enough in it, I guess, as mm-hmm. as a pure as the pure form of rock and roll. Well, I, I know what you're saying because sometimes blues can do that for me, Matt. But for me, blues kind of comes down to the attitude because you're doing you're doing the repetitive refrains. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned before, that the, there's a reason they talk about the blues guitar licks and stuff because they are foundational rock guitar links. But why I like this album a lot was the energy that Muddy Waters had, the playfulness yep. of it. It was like mm-hmm. a live album even though I think this technically is a studio album. I know it's considered Muddy Waters' comeback album or, or return to form album. Is yeah, it, it seems late. Just... 77 seems very late. Right. It's like one of those fake live albums where they do it, the studio chatter. It kind of is, yeah. And you wonder if they're just in the studio just sort of chopping it up and, and doing this because it has the feel of a live album. And live blues is certainly always better than album. I, I put blues in the same category as like jam bands and stuff that mm-hmm. it yeah. almost seems just weird to make an album of it because it's not the venue that it's supposed to be. It, it is a stu- it is a studio album. I did yeah. check it. It's, yeah. Yeah. But you know, mm-hmm. a blues studio album is not always the best vehicle, but they managed to take the feel of a live show and put it in here. And, you know, we did that BB King album that was live. Yep. That was highly right. enjoyable because of the talk on the stage and just the feel and the, and the passion. And, and to me, that's what it comes down to. Like, am I feeling emotionally, the the context of the blues from this person so in that case it has to be is the blues man i'm listening to an authentic bluesman that i want to hear right and and that's a it's a very arbitrary um characterization because i think five people can sing the same blues song and you can it can resonate with you from two and maybe not two others and the fifth it depends on the day and this one definitely hit with me i i mm-hmm. enjoyed this from start to finish um i was very interested in the creation of this and who i was hearing and there's a bunch of studio musicians that they brought in like a band um 
there's a drummer, there's a pianist, there's a guitarist, uh, there's a, actually a session harmonicist, uh, there's a bassist, which becomes clear easy because, you know, blues doesn't always have to have bass, right? And there definitely was bass in this. Um, I, I enjoyed it. And I, I, the, I like blues songs when they're sung with a little bit of a twinkle in your eye um, and a little, you know, a good blues song either expresses pain or a childlike quality at times or like like virile horniness kind of it's some it's almost like a childlike you know kind of immature sexuality at times like yeah. when we saw the robert johnson songs yep. and and this album has each of those songs heartbreak and pain a childlike sort of overt sexuality like direct but it's direct in the sense that it's usually like a euphemism but the like you know any the, the thing i always it's not blues but if you want to go R and B example, it's like "My Dingaling" by Chuck Berry, right? Hmm. Like you don't have to guess real hard what it is, although it can slip by censors, right? And um, yeah, so I, I definitely enjoyed this. I, I understand completely, Matt, what you're saying, and I know that you mentioned something similar to gospel, where it's like this is not my genre of choice. And I said, for me, it comes down to: Am I sitting there listening to it, and is the person someone who catches my attention? If it's not a genre that has a lot of derivation in sound mm. and I feel that way about blues and I don't know what it is this one I don't know if it was the day it listened or just how Muddy yep. Waters was singing but I connected with this one and I really enjoyed it I, I will say just as a just to piggyback off that I like I would much rather listen to this than gospel though this <laughs> yeah. even though I found yeah. I even though I found myself a little like not as into it as I, maybe other albums. It the gospel album with Aretha Franklin. It, that that I was exhausted at the end of that. I was like, and, and you know, I wasn't like that at all here. I did like this. It's just it it just kind of, yeah. It's just uh, I, I hear you. I, I think for me a little bit. Yeah. I think for me, I was kind of just saying it's a similar types of thing that I don't go and listen to a ton of blues albums and a ton right. of gospel albums. But when I do, there's a context that I can enjoy both of them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think, but I mean, if I had to guess why it's on the Thousand and One albums to listen to, it's because Muddy Waters is a, a seminal blues uh, musician, one of, one of the most famous and probably recognizable in terms of like classic blues. And and the thing I took away from this is that um, this, this album sounds really good. It's probably like the best mm -hmm. that Muddy Waters will ever sound in a studio. And when you compare it to some of the other earlier blues records, you know, especially something like Robert Johnson, which was like found and, mm. and restored, it just sounds, it sounds like it's probably supposed to sound live, right? It, it, it has that richness to it. You get the, you get the energy that John's describing when listening to the album. And it, I feel like I was in the movie Roadhouse listening uh, when I was listening to this one, <laughs> one of my favorite. Hopefully movies. you didn't get your throat ripped out, Josh. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, yeah. So despite the music being foundational and, and you, anybody who listens to music a lot will know any of these kind of riffs or bass lines or, you know, the boogie woogie bass line that Robert Johnson invented or perfected, or, you know, probably took from some other older blues guy, but the, well, they're all and, here. And this one is that Chicago blues sound, yeah. right? Which is a little different than the Robert Johnson sound. Yeah, That's Delta a little bit blues. more. Exactly. Yep. You got it. Yep. Yeah. So this is representative of that too. And I can't even remember what the difference between Chicago and Delta blues is. Oh, I'm not smart enough to know that. Yeah. Either. I just know that this is what Chicago, yeah. <laughs> it's like BB King is Chicago blues mm -hmm. too. And it does have its own sound. Yeah. Yep. But it's, it's got that energy. It's got the, 
the um you know the the classic master doing it like the best that anyone can do also shout out to Gainesville being mentioned in this uh, deep down in Florida which is a um, classic blues song and where we met so but yeah I I enjoyed it too it it wouldn't be something again kind of similar to Matt it wouldn't be something I would seek out but I'm never gonna like not listen to these and I would love hearing these live Uh, here you go Josh Delta Blues was recreated in the Mississippi Delta and was predominantly (laughs) acoustic Often okay. played in, bo- in bottleneck guitar style, while Chicago blues is pioneered by artists like Muddy Waters, is an electric mm-hmm. guitar style developed to be yeah. heard above the crowds in noisy clubs. Okay, so acoustic versus acoustic electric. versus Basic. electric. Well, yeah, it was yeah. kind of what right. It was when the the southern artists right just went north, right north, right, <laughs> and migrate, and then basically had to play in a different environment. That's I always think of it as being played at a tenor up, you know, mm-hmm. and more pieces. Um, I, I think it almost like to me always feels like jazz derivative as well, like a ensemble kind of, as opposed to just one guy with a guitar playing. But yeah. I could just be making that up. So, yeah, I, I wonder too. You know, with the fact that it's electric, it just automatically brings kind of a different level of energy to it versus acoustic. Um, like you said, it has if it has to be played live to get over crowd noise, I think that brings something different to it. Sure. Well, and and also to kind of say this is number the fourth highest ranked album of Muddy Waters on Best Ever Albums. Uh, Number one is Folk Folk Singer, um, which was from 1964. So that's a studio album. But then the second one is the best of Muddy Waters. So it's a compilation (laughs) record. So Uh, that doesn't count. Like best albums don't count. Right. So and uh, and the third one is a live album from at Newport of 1960. Um, Hmm, So uh, so yeah. So this is really. Yeah, so this is Maybe, how many years later? This is 77? This is 77. And yeah, he's got yeah. an album. I mean, he's got the the best of Muddy Waters is, came out in, 19, in, in the 50s, in 1958. <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah. So, the dude so he had made enough like, music to have a best of in 1958. And then this correct. album in 77. Wow. Okay. Apparently, yeah. Which is, I'm trying to find his 50s albums. But, um, yeah. So, anyway, it's it's interesting that... I mean, this is probably one of the this is one of the top two studio albums, at least that's mm-hmm. that best ever albums is ranked. Yeah, it's like that's um in the 70s. That didn't happen as much where an older artist sort of gets discovered and then has their cool late career album. At least yeah. not that we've seen too much. That's obviously a thing now. Right. That yeah. happens a lot. But I feel like this might be one of the earliest examples of that phenomenon. Like, you know, you could see like Eric Clapton or Mick Jagger or somebody saying like, hey, you know, we got to do a you know Muddy Waters album. Get him in the studio. And, you know, basically well, doing the, an homage. Funny thing, too, is he had a compila- another compilation album released in 2001 that's called The Anthology, 1947 to 1972. Wow. So apparently wow. he was doing he was doing stuff in the 40s. So, uh, well, yeah. and that doesn't even include this because no. that stops at 72. Exactly. Wow. Jeez. Okay. When yeah, did that's he got mad albums. Yeah. When we say foundational, that's what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can literally just release go. an album that's your second best album, and it's not on a 30-year run that represents another album. So Covering yeah. half of the 20th century in blues. Yeah, yeah, he was born in 1913, and he died in 1983. Okay, so, wow. So this is towards the end so of his 80? career then, too. Yeah. yeah, so he's like, by this time, he's, he's like so 60. So he'd be in a seven, He's over he 60 his... when he did this album. Well, yeah. he would have been 80 if he died in 83, right? And this would have been uh, 60 70. Years. Oh, wait, no. Uh, 80? 
1913 to 1983. So he would have been 70. 70. Okay, so he was doing this. He died when he was 70. Yeah. Okay. So he was yeah. So he was like 65 when he did this record. Wow. Yep. Which is not not old from an artist perspective now, but back then it was different. People age differently. (laughs) I think even now it's. I mean, you don't see too many people who are releasing new music at 65. Most people are playing there. You know greatest hits at this stage of their career i guess i guess just in terms you know it's it's not unusual now to see the rolling stones live and stuff like like they're still going and many other artists are just oh right to play live yes yes yes. i just said to release new stuff yeah 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 but there were some others remember herbie hancock we were talking about him releasing albums all the way up until this past year right still Mm -hmm. was doing it so yeah that's really cool and i i'm I'm glad we covered a Muddy Waters album because yeah. it would have been an incomplete journey through 60 years without talking about Muddy Waters. And we did cover B.B. King before. So we, we touched on some of the seminal bluesmen, which I think is important as we listen to this. No. Nope. Gotcha. All right. So, Matt, run us through the numbers for our third album. And then I guess it's my turn to, to take the reins of the car to start us off. Yeah. Well. This is uh, Fela Kuti in Africa 70 with expensive shit. Um, and on best ever albums ranking, it comes in at number 262 in the 1970s, number 19 in 1975, number 1,223 of all time. And it did make Rolling Stones list in the top 500 at number 402. And it is in, on best ever albums. It is his second highest ranked album. Gotcha. Well, this was a fascinating album. I really enjoyed this. Um, I, as I was listening to this, I just kept, this is where a cold list and hot take is a interesting format for albums. <laughs> for like two this tracks because, also. <laughs> for, right. For two, it's because it's a lot to digest for two tracks and there's a lot of different stuff going on here. There's, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, it's a, a album coming out of Africa. It's got what you consider to be at the most base, and I, I don't mean to minimize it because I'll go into what I mean by this, but there's a there's a clear African sound, right? But there's also like a Latin sound like all over this, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I was also really interested in what the theme was of this album because with the title like expensive shit right yeah. i'm like okay there has to be something and then we've touched on felicuti a little bit right in some of the other ones enough to know that he's in nigeria in a tumultuous period we also know that he sort of had a sense of propriety right on mm-hmm. the area so my my gut told me as I was listening to this that there had to be some sort of political stance to this. So, guys, I cheated a ton. Mm. A ton on this one. I'm I guessing had, there was. I did not cheat on the music reviews, right? So I, I did not want to do that, but I had to cheat on the context of what was going on. So what was happening was that Fela Kuti was a professional musician, but also was sort of a like a political statesman kind of it sounded a little bit like kind of the bob marley role right but a little bit more um overtly plugged into like actually doing political acts you know as opposed to being the spokesman for a generation does that make sense kind of he Mm -hmm. yeah so he apparently had been sort of targeted by the ruling the rulers of nigeria in this case in lagos in specific and so he 
how the story goes is that cops planted marijuana on him, um, and I guess they were coming to arrest him, but Cootie was able to swallow the marijuana, and he he kind of just then, like, the whole... It was this really interesting story, and he basically... The, the long and the short of it, guys, is that he swallows this marijuana, okay, and then he to destroy the evidence and so then he's held by the authorities while they're waiting for him to like crap it out right to have the evidence that this happened right so but while this was happening it never came out right hence the idea he called it expensive shit (laughs) i'm not making that up by the way that is the thing but like it's also a larger thing because there's a context you know what i mean of you know where money was going, right, with the rulers, and they weren't being seen by other people. So there's another layer to this. So that's a little bit of, like, the context. There's a lot more, and I kind of went down a rabbit hole, right, about what, like, Nigeria was like in the mid-'70s because I was kind of fascinated. But let's talk – we're a music podcast, though. So let's talk a little bit about um, how, like, I heard this. The drums are really interesting. It's funky. It's a really funky album. And one thing that stood out to me, guys, is – how much we've listened to quite a few funk albums and I was amazed actually how much this sounded like a a funk album but just coming at it from a different direction does that make sense as to what I'm saying yes yeah mm-hmm. right th- yeah and so and 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 Kuti's got this really interesting voice that's passionate even if you're not 100% sure what he's talking about um especially on uh water no get enemy which is just there's these big beats right all over it and then Kuti is singing sort of in a percussive way um and then this keyboard is all over it too which makes it a really interesting uh, is it I, I don't know is it keyboard or is it that like electric piano because I couldn't tell if it was the same thing just being played differently or if they were both there but um needless to say it's there's there's brass instruments all over mm-hmm. this um yeah it's it's really cool and I I I'm I'm gonna kind of come back to it. I don't want to over talk my piece of it, but I really like this album, um, and I'd love to hear it again in a different context. You know, where I was kind of earmarking specific things that I remember from the first time I listened to it, um, and going back and and digging through almost like I do on a jazz album. So, uh, but Josh, what do you think? I'm curious to hear both you guys take. Yeah, I th- I thought it sounded similar to like the brazilian music that we've talked about um Mm -hmm. yeah so i think it's drawn on that too when you say it's got the latin influence i mean brazil's not really latin america but well i don't know if it's it's, influenced but it sounds latin yeah yeah. i don't know if it's if he was influenced or just was the overlap you know yeah it's got this great this album's got this great energy to it i like the fact that there's like this constant beat in the background throughout the entire thing it's Mm -hmm. the same beat too but then they're adding stuff on top of it and the things like the horns i picture him like running around on stage and stuff performing or like playing different instruments even though i think there's just a bunch of musicians playing but it's got that kind of energy where like you want to move to it but then there's a lot going on and to take in too it's it's almost like a combination of like jazz like afro jazz almost or something or like this Mm -hmm. like um or maybe like afro funk 
too. It's it's not as it's not as like well is it? It's not as like bass heavy as some of the funk we've heard, or I don't think of it that way. It's more it's more like danceable, although the funk's danceable too. I don't know. There's just like it's it's lighter, I guess, in tone than some of the funk that we've heard. I think that's how I would describe it. Um, there's no vocals for a lot of the time too on this track. He comes in late, like about six minutes in on the um, the uh, first track, expensive shit, and then and then you just get other other instrumentation and and um, on the second track like a repeating uh, like chorus of people singing singing water get no no get enemy or something about water. I, again, I only listened to this once. This, uh, this would be an album to listen to again, for sure. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I like the, I like the feel of it. I like the, the energy of it. And, um, oh, and, and the album cover is, I mean, definitely commenting on something. It's a, it's a bunch of African women giving the black power symbol topless behind barbed wire so (laughs) that's like um you know i think that plays into the themes of what he was and they're smiling so it's like this contrast of of a lot of different things going on in the album um yeah i was getting a um i i like this as well i was getting more of a uh, reminded of uh listening to the jazz records that we have um Mm -hmm. you know and i I don't, it's, it's kind of weird. Like it's, it, it's got certain elements of that. I definitely heard the funk as well. Um, you know, but I just liked a lot of the tone, like the guitar, a lot of the guitars that were being played was kind of, it was in the background, but they were, I just thought that they were very crisp, clear tones that, that were, that I liked. Um, and then there's lots of horns as well. So there was just something about it that I was just feeling like this, this seems like an improv jazz type, um, uh, sound that I was getting. And, um, you know, kind of comparing it to some of the other stuff, more accessible than the stuff that we've listened to already. Um, the, you know, the kind of the Miles Davis electric stuff, for example, or yeah, even some yeah. of the Coltrane stuff. I think that this is uh, more accessible, and maybe it's maybe it's because of the production of the tones, um, or maybe it's just because of that the, the beats that are in the background that are there. But you're right; it's not as I agree that the, it's not as predominant or like as upfront. There's other stuff going on, and the the rhythm is a little bit to the back, but it still is consistent throughout the songs. Um, and lots of like bongos and like you know not like drum kits or anything like that. It's like bongos and like those those sticks that you're banging together mm-hmm. and just these like a little bit more primitive, uh, if you will, uh, percussion instruments, you know, basic percussion instruments. But um, yeah, hard to kind of like, because again, it's not stuff that I listen to typically, but um, it, it, and only one listen and you're kind of just like, well, I just, I like this. And it's kind of, you know, it, right. it doesn't, I don't mind the fact that the songs are on the long side. side. I kind of think that this is one of the, you know, types of songs that should be long, you know, kind of give you some time to digest it, take it in. And, you know, they do, they, you know, vary it up a little bit. Like you're right with the vocals, which at times I was like, are they, sometimes they're speaking English <laughs> yeah. and sometimes I don't know what yeah. they're speaking, but well, um, it's which, that like which, pigeon, pigeon English, right. Where it's like, that's kind of like an African like, thing, right. It's like the native language is yeah. a, a native African language, but also English, which is like kind of, yeah there's a lot of countries in Africa like that, right? Like Kenya, Africa, Nigeria, places where like the technically the language is English, but then it's like a version that's like a hybrid of 
Uh, just like there's pidgin Spanish, right? At different right. places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and so, and some of the vocals were almost like the it was some maybe call and response or like chanting in a way. It's like I don't know, like a mantra, or whatever. But it was, you know, it, it, I I liked it. It's you know, it's it's definitely different. I th- I thought the water catch uh, no get enemy uh, at the beginning of that. There's like a horn part there that sounds like the beginning of the Odd Couple theme song, um, <laughs> which I was like, that sounds heavy. It kind of sounds like the Odd Couple. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's it's just it's interesting. I probably would like to listen to it again to be able to say more about it. But uh, you know, I, I definitely yeah, it was it was it was a fun listen. It was an easy listen too. You know, I didn't really have to you know expand myself too much. It just it kind of hit me you know as it was, and uh, and I liked it. Yeah, so definitely something that would be wonderful to see live too. I get the feeling this music is made to see live in the oh, same yeah. way that yeah, I would agree the with the blues that. album was. Well, yeah, you could just see these guys playing this stuff and having a blast, you know, yeah. and like getting the crowd into it and everybody dancing and calling back and stuff. So, no, I agree with that. Well, and he's a um, he's a very significant figure in contemporary Nigerian history, too. So it's it's almost as much his music is an outgrowth to some degree of the time and the place of Nigeria. It, it's I remember all the way back, Matt, when you talk about Ushmitantes and they sort of blended being in the political realm with also doing music yep. that was revolutionary. And I feel like he operates a similar space. And we said mm. Marley, he kind of is in that space as well, um, where, yeah, I mean, his story is fascinating. He's he's also a very complicated guy <laughs> in that, like, he's very, very right on some issues and, like, very, very wrong on other issues um, at, at, in terms of how history would judge you, right? Mm. But most of them he's right on, but he had a couple, you know, he had an interesting end of his life thing with like AIDS denialism, right? Which is a little inconvenient, but he also was always pretty much on the right side of human rights and stuff and was Mm -hmm. a legitimate voice for the voiceless. Um, And he basically, he was always at odds with any of the dictatorships that were in Nigeria. And he, he almost died on a raid at a compound. So I don't mean to go, I I love history as you guys know, (laughs) but I think in this case it's appropriate though, because I heard it in the lyrics a little bit and, and Mm -hmm. the sound of the album. And um, I mean, yeah, even the title refers to something, but musically I loved it. It was eclectic. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, yeah, they're two longer songs, but how can you even do this style of music and the derivations without going long? So um, to me, it's a different framework than a pop album or a rock and roll album so kind of like the blues right like you can't write a three minute blues song you know to have a good blues song it's got to be like six or seven minutes minimum uh but then there's Uh, i don't know about that you think so why can't you do a blues song it can be we just listened to muddy waters he did they weren't all seven minutes yeah i just i the best blues songs i think lot i think of his lot once again i go back to live right okay even if your song is three or four minutes on an album is anybody ever going to play that blues song in a live no, form that's true your standards so yep. i guess that's what i'm getting yeah can fish make three and a half minute songs or the grateful dead like are they going to play them for three and a half minutes at a concert not the ones that not, the people there want to hear you know yeah. so yeah so uh, does that help to add yeah no i, I see, I see what you're yeah. saying yeah, yeah. um and the interesting too, thing too is like when i was talking about oh this is his second highest rated album that's actually his second highest rated with with the band Africa 70 because he has solo uh, albums as well just with him just accredited to him and then he also has albums with with Africa 70 and Ginger Baker oh um, yeah so Ginger Baker this Nigeria thing's kind of keep yeah. keeps cropping up yeah. here 
Well, I also think it's interesting that like when 1980 hit, he renamed his band uh, Egypt 80, which was interesting. <laughs> so he, just, he understood, you know, the change of the decade signaled new things. But yeah, so absolutely. But yeah, I would recommend this one. This was really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is another one that I would love to have folks more familiar with it. In, in the coldness and hot take, I sometimes feel like we're catching up on some of the context because we're only listening to it once. And this is where I'd love some folks that are um, familiar with the narrative or familiar with the music to add extra color. So love to hear from you on the YouTube page when we post this or just in, you know, communistaxgmail.com with feedback as well. Or just if you listen to this album, if you have, or you do, and you want to point stuff up too on any of these Mm -hmm. albums, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah. Or is is Fela Kuti like, the Michael Jordan in Nigeria or something. Is he like super famous and everyone knows who he is? I don't know if Michael like, Jordan <laughs> would be who I'd be. It's like, um, he seemed to, he seemed to kind of carry an interesting role where he was critical of European and American influence on Africa, like the exploitative mm-hmm. influence, but he was equally critical of, I guess what you consider to be in his mind, the Western backed, governments of his own countrymen right mm-hmm. so he's going back and forth between like challenging the the native even the, even the independent governments right where there's independent you know he kind of is speaking out against what, what he would consider to be corrupt governments or dictatorial governments mm-hmm. but also very steady drumbeat about the effect of you know europe and and united states you know both lineage wise cultural lineage you know as well as in their role in the world like he from what i understand in the 80s he was like writing songs about like margaret thatcher and ronald reagan right to give you an idea because obviously they represented i guess the 80s right more than any two political figures yeah the west yeah so okay got it okay so three down two to go and and we just keep continuing to do interesting albums and so uh josh starts us on this one but matt as always, run the numbers for us. So we've got Tonight's the Night by Neil Young um, on Best Ever Albums, list of the 70s. It comes in at number 112 and number 8 in the year 1975, number 483 of all time. And on best uh, and on Rolling Stones list in the top 500, it comes in at number 302. Uh, and it's also important to point out that on Best Ever Albums, it's his sixth highest rated album of all time. And we've covered... Let's go through. Let's do a thing. So we've covered Harvest. Yeah. Um, yep. Every, everybody we, knows this is nowhere. And after the gold rush. Nowhere yeah. And after the gold rush. Right. So mm-hmm. this is our fourth. And he's this is sixth in terms of the rankings. Correct. The other ones, are they coming later or did we not cover them? So we're going to cover. We're gonna, we are going to cover On the Beach for sure. So that's the um, album before this. Yes. I don't know if we're going to cuss. There's Rust Never Sleeps is a live mm-hmm. album, and it's currently ranked at number 99 on Best mm-hmm. Ever Albums, and it's from 1979. So I don't, I don't know if we are covering that or not. That might not have made the top 100 when mm-hmm. we put the, when we put our list together. Okay, gotcha. Well, there's we'll always see. room for stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. So looking at the spreadsheet for the longest time. I kept in my head. I kept thinking, "Oh, all right, we're gonna do Neil Diamond." But then, like, I looked at, when I put up the typed in. You know how your brain sees one thing, and yeah, and uh, 
it's not that and then I started listening I was like oh it's Neil Young okay that's an interesting <laughs> thing to see <laughs> so I see the picture on the album it kind of looks like maybe that could be Neil Diamond I mean yeah you know. I don't know my head my head wanted Neil Diamond I guess yeah <laughs> but my heart got Neil Young <laughs> <laughs> so so this is uh this is I would say a departure for Neil Young from what we've heard so far basically it's like a piano driven neil young album that's that's kind of what i heard on this and it was more well he always splits it between acoustic and electric i feel like on his albums and we get more of that as well it also sounds more like a live album is it like again another fake live album though where i heard different things and like kind of uh, almost like not live background chatter but like little defects or or instruments moving or something like that throughout kind of the the playing of the album and and other artists and i wonder if again that was intentional or if it was actual live album but it's i don't know uh i assume is he playing the piano on this too i don't know i think it might be somebody else playing the piano i would i would assume so oh no no you know who's playing the piano Nils oh, Lofgren. Nils Lofgren. Nils Lofgren. Yep. Yeah, because they they, yeah. they name check him in the song. I think I was like, gonna say because they Nils mentioned him or yeah, something yeah, like that. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> That's how I. Knew That's it. how I knew it. Yeah, because <laughs> he said that. Yep. Oh, I yeah. forgot. About, yeah, you're right. Okay. So it it's definitely uh, piano driven. You still have the the classic like Neil Young harmonica with his guitar playing, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's bringing those other guys and Nils clearly up to the front more. So you bring you still have the blues, you still have the country, you still have the rock, especially kind of on the back half of the album. But then they are they're just kind of incorporating more piano at the end of the day. That's but I heard pedal steel also. I heard um you know that same kind of electric guitar feel it sounded more i don't know just more like nashville country almost in certain ways that was kind of what i i still enjoyed it you still it's still the neil young singing voice that you may or may not like but i i enjoyed the album i don't think it's as good as those other albums that we've talked about in right off the bat i feel like more strongly about those albums than this one but this was a it was a interesting departure gotcha and matt what are your initial thoughts um, yeah to me this i didn't really know this i the only song i knew on this was tonight's the night um and so to me this album is the sound of neil young maturing you know kind mm-hmm. of moving on I, I agree with josh this is it sounds like a departure certainly from the last three albums that uh, that, that we covered his you know his first three of his first four um i you know i kind of felt like this sounded like a little bit of the neil that you get you know sometimes in the 80s or even later there's some songs in here where he's not even really singing he's just speaking and um i know the album greendale it's what, what is neil young's concept album from like i don't know 15 years ago or something like that it's 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 okay but there's plenty of parts in it where it seems like he's just he's talking it's like telling a story and Hmm. so i was kind of reminded a little bit of that when i was listening here um so i i liked it i didn't love it i was a a little disappointed in this i was hoping to like it more um you know it wasn't didn't seem as raw to me as as some of the other neil stuff that we got um yeah that's a good way to say it you know that's so funny you say that because 
I felt totally opposite, but continue. Really? Yeah, and I'll, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I just, I, I feel like some of, I mean, and not to say that the albums that, that we've covered already were all just like, you know, these blistering rock songs, because that's not, not the case at all. But there's, there's definitely some really, you know, stripped down um, uh, tunes that he did. But I, I, I don't know. I, th- this, this is Neil getting a little bit less, I don't know raw to me um and losing a little bit of his of his edge losing a little bit of his fastball too um there's still elements of crosby stills and nash on here you know you can totally you know that it sounds like um you know yeah to the point like they could be singing on this yeah i don't think that they are i did just take a look i didn't see their names pop up on my initial glance so i don't think that they are but uh it's it's definitely kind of in that realm a little bit um, you know, there's a lot of country stuff on here too. You know, he's, he's still, he's still delving in that, which is fine, you know, with slide guitars. And I think probably roll another, roll another number for the road might be the most country sounding Neil Young song I've ever heard. Um, that's, that's fair, fair, you know, very, uh, very country in the, in its tone, which yeah, is I fine. Old, I, li- I, I like it. I wrote down old time country for that old time <laughs> country. Yeah. It's, it's kind of somber as well. Um, so yeah, I, I liked it. I, I, this I probably would like to listen to this more because um, I do, I love Neil Young. When when he hits for me, he really hits, um, you know. And uh, I, I I think, but I yeah, I was just left a little bit like, oh man, I was hoping to be like blown away, and I wasn't blown away. So, um, but again, it was only it was only one uh, one listen. I thought Mellow My Mind was interesting because I, I don't think I've ever heard his his voice cracks a lot, but I've never heard it crack like it does on that song. It seems mm-hmm. like it's he's he's particularly going out of his way to, to make it um it's almost like a screeching kind of just like yeah, just cracking of his voice. Um and some of this, the guitar tone a little bit. I, I was on speaking out. I heard a little bit of a Mark Knopfler crisp, you know, guitar sound to it, like a little bit more of a produced crisp, crisp guitar sound. So um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I love Neil. He departs. He moves on to different stuff, and I think it's fine. He's trying different sounds and trying different things. But I wasn't I wasn't blown away by it on one listen. So um, I I would probably like to listen to it more to see if I can get a little bit more into it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, I'm. I'm glad you guys talked about the sound musically a little bit because I'm going to go in a total di- – never has there been a difference of like like as a lyrics guy. This album, I was like, what is going on with Neil Young's life? Because the, the <laughs> songs are interesting but bleak and yeah. to the point where he's writing about – Neil Young has that thing where he writes about, you know – old man he's writing about a generalized he or you know generalized person these don't feel like that these are so then the question for me became is neil young writing is neil young here or is neil young writing about specific people because Mm. it is a remarkably stark album lyrically um and and so i said i i have to know the context of because outside of that it's as you guys mentioned, he goes, you know, in some areas, he's a little bit more uh, plugged in, a little bit more, he's more country, and a little bit more, it's more uh, folk. And he, But it's the same genres you kind of yeah. expect in the, so yeah. from that mm-hmm. sense, it's not going to be a departure of, like, Neil Young dabbles in these styles, but it's not like when he, you know, the, the ones were right, he's dabbling with, like, electronic music and stuff later, where it's like, well, okay, now he's trying to just actually invert stuff. So right. that's still there, and it's still the Neil Young voice, right, which I would argue in this, it's much harder to ignore Neil Young voice if you don't like it than any other album we've covered, because it's front and center. 
And I think some of that is because th- it's designed to be because the lyrics and the, the vocal content, it's not as abstract as Neil Young can be at times mm-hmm. um, and just sort of writing with it. So I became fascinated because I'm like, okay, I have to know what is going on in Neil Young's life <laughs> at this point because th- there's clearly stuff going on because you don't write songs like this, right? That are like this unless something's going on. And of course, the answer is all the things were going on in Neil Young's life. So <laughs> least, least shocking thing ever was that, that that was going on. So the big themes of this album, as I look back now lyrically, and you can hear it when you know this, but I think I was even able to piece some of these together as I was listening. Um, a second straight person that was close to Neil Young died. Uh, in this, so his roadie mm. in this case, a guy by the name of Bruce Barry. So if you remember from a Harvest, right? Needle and the Damage Done is yep. about mm. the guitar player, right? So oh, this is the second okay. drug. So there's definitely an anti-drug sentiment on this album when you listen. Like before I even went into this, I was like, is this him writing about his own addiction? Is this him writing about, you know, that person we know before? But the song Tired Eyes, for example, is basically when you listen to it lyrically, it's just about basically saying to this person, you know, he tried hard, right? But just life was too hard, right? You know, and, and that's kind of was what the theme of Needle and the Damage Done was too. And you're like, boy, he's he's really, I think there's even a line where he goes like, he tried his best, but he could not at one point. It's like, well, it's pretty straightforward, right? And so then the other thing that seems to be a theme of this is like, this is where Neil Young becomes like completely disenfranchised with fame. Right now, he's always had that underpining, right? And that rebel heart a little bit. But this is where, like, he's not only acting that way, but he's putting it on um, paper. And and a big theme of this seems to be that when they he went out on tour, the tour for this was kind of a mess because apparently he was a mess. Right. And so the tour featured you know, him struggling with his voice and when they're playing, they're not tight. It's really loose. And you can see all of that on this album Mm -hmm. because it is kind of like an unwieldy album. And you mentioned, Matt, I'm glad you did the like voice breaking, right. And not in like the Neil Young singing style where it could sound like it's like a true break. And apparently that was because he, um, it, it just was raw pain, you know, in a way and stuff. And so that, that is kind of my takeaway from this. It's it's almost impossible for me to evaluate this album in the way I evaluate the other ones because to me, the takeaway for me on this album is going to be pretty standard issue Neil Young sounding album. In fact, I you could make an easy argument, and I get why you guys got there, that this is the least impressive music album we've covered from Neil Young. There's the least amount of good guitar parts. There's the least amount of interesting compositions. But lyrically, this is... The by far the most interesting Neil Young album we've covered, in my opinion. Yeah. And Harvest was a damn good one. Don't get me wrong. And you know he wrote he writes great songs on all of them, but he never writes songs this bald and this emotionally available. And uh, he did later in his career. And I, I like you said, Matt. I can't help but wonder if this is like where he turned the corner as an artist yeah. in terms of the style. So yeah. Um, so I give it a slight thumbs up in the sense that I was fascinated lyrically by this album throughout and listening to the music, it became clear in a way that sometimes happens for me. It became clear that I wanted to know more about what he was singing about because I got a feel for it that was like, okay, 
time to listen to what's going on here. Um, so, yeah, and I think that makes sense. Now, now I know what you're saying, disagreeing with my comment about it not being as raw as his other, because lyrically... Musically, it isn't. I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, and that's, and that's where I was coming at it from, because yeah. I was looking at it more of the musical standpoint. But mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me. I didn't know any of the context of, the, of, of what was going on with him or like any pain or whatever, but it doesn't surprise me. That that he was experiencing those things after you know with listening to this album because there's there's something missing there with the with the the, the edge or the power the I want to say emotion but not because he's certainly emoting right it's the emotions there but just it's in a different way and it, it, it to me it didn't translate well, as well musically. Um, as well, I wrote down some stuff. some isolated lyrics to give you an idea, but he he like there's like ly- to give you an idea of the feel of this album. He's writing things like a million miles away from that helicopter day. He's saying starving to be alone, independent from the scene that I've known. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, find somewhere where they don't care who I am comes up at one point. The world on a string doesn't mean anything. I mean, he's constantly banging that drum, you know, with yeah. metaphors. Yeah. And like after a while, I know you guys aren't lyric guys, but like if I had told you, listen to the lyrics, I think you guys would have been like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I, let's, yeah. The one that I picked out that I kind of made me. That kind of made me laugh was it was on borrowed tune. He was like singing a, bar, a, a borrowed tune from the Rolling Stones, too wasted to write my own. Yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know. it's that's what I'm saying. It's like you know what I'm talking about, though, right? Like you know when when Neil Young is talking about these people, you get the yeah. idea that some of it's him, but there's also a level of detachment. I never got that feeling on this album. I felt mm. like this was. It felt like Neil Young speaking to me as Neil Young, <laughs> like on this yeah. album, which is such a departure from what the other albums sounded like. So, because um, he ain't Joni Mitchell historically, right? Yeah. You know, writing personal stuff. So, yeah, yeah. There's not a cl- looking over the track. There's not a clear single on this album either. It's not. I don't feel like it's designed based on everything you've said to be kind of a more commercial like hit chart hit or album hit and because maybe because of that personal nature he wasn't like that wasn't in his mindset or it just didn't happen well and you know that deal that and matt you probably are familiar with this and josh you may be as well but like throughout his career neil young has had these albums made and he's famous for having an album in the last second like not releasing it and releasing another album instead and Mm -hmm. so this is the first time he did that apparently like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young went on a tour, right? And then the record company is like, all right, this tour was super successful. Neil put out an album. And I guess he had one that he played and stuff and they were aware of it. And at the last second, he threw an audible out and released this instead. And they said the record label was like infuriated because (laughs) this was like, as you guys mentioned, a departure, right? And didn't, you know, sell like it did. But um, yeah, yeah, and therein lies Neil Young, right? He's yeah, there were no wants. there were no singles from this record. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, that's what I'm sure the record company's right, like, yeah. what the hell's going on here? How are we going to yeah. market this? Yeah, yeah, the only and the only reason I knew Tonight's the Night the song was because it's on it's on the um I have the album Live Rust, a live album mm-hmm. that he did out of late 70s early 80s something like that. I think it's in late 70s it has but that, uh, that was on there. It has that cool like don't it is 79 79 yeah and i like actually i think i like that there's two versions of it on this record and i do i think i like the the second one better it's like a bluesier like there's a little bit more going on there um Mm -hmm. musically but part two yeah it's um yeah i think that this is kind of like yeah this seems like neil diverging because i'm looking at the albums that came out after these this one and i'm like 
I don't really know these albums. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it's, uh, yeah. So I think he's kind of going a little bit of a different direction, which is fine. Uh, One know, last just... thing, Matt, that I'll mention, you know what yeah. this album reminded me of? And I'd never mm. listened to this album before. So I'll, I'll, Alibi, it's one of the few Neil Young 70s albums I was not familiar with. This reminded me of Blood on the Tracks, lyrically. Okay, okay. And, and yeah. I mean, that's that's Dylan's divorce album, right? Yep. So, like, mm-hmm. same thing, these stark lyrics. And once again, a guy clearly writing from a more personal perspective right. than the uh, detached advisor. And so as I was listening to this, I was like, Jesus, this is like Neil Young's Blood on the Tracks, it feels like. So yeah, for context, uh, uh, difference there being I don't know the music hits more. Well, I think you, with blood on the tracks. You, you're it, yeah. going back to music, and once again, yeah. my what I'm referring to here at that comparison is lyrical content. No, I uh, no totally, but I, but 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 blood on the tracks stand, stands out a little bit more, at least in the eyes in the eyes of me, and like it's you know it's. I, freaking that's uh, according to rolling stones list that's like dylan's best album like that was like well we're gonna cover so we'll talk like plenty yeah. about it i but, just um, give, i'm giving yeah. a touch point that we'll no i hear what it. you're saying because the because the bleak lyrics and stuff like that change life circumstances yeah i absolutely i would agree with that okay and then there was one guys one mm-hmm. album left Matt, yep. run the numbers and then just go right into it. Oh, then it. it's me. Okay, so this is Robert Wyatt with Rock Bottom from 1974. Comes in on Best Ever Albums list at number 103 in the 1970s, number 5 in 1974, number 414 of all time. It is his highest ranked album on Best Ever Albums. And uh, it did not make Rolling Stones list. Um, and I think, John, you said we covered this maybe because at one time it made the top 100 in best ever albums. It was it, it was at 100 at one point. Yes, okay. right at the time when we were initially making the list, it was going back and forth. Yeah. Okay. Um, so full disclosure, I have no idea who Robert Wyatt is. This was, I, I uh, looked at that. I was like, so I had no idea what to expect here. And, um, Spoiler alert: He has a really interesting life too that I won't get into. But yeah. okay, so well, I, I'm I'm wondering if this has something to do with Brian Eno because this this is another one of these electronic albums from the '70s that seems way ahead of its time. Um, and it just I'm trying. To, I I wrote down several uh, adjectives to or to try to describe the music or trying to you know what was going on here. And I'm like I'm like avant pop. Um, avant electronic, if that's such a thing. I've, avant is certainly a word that's that's going to be preceding some other ones here. Um, I heard. Can Raga, I give you there... one interesting frame of reference, Matt? That might be okay. interesting for you. Do you know who this album was produced by? Was Pink it Brian Floyd Eno? drummer Nick Mason? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I wouldn't have guessed that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. I'll, I'll just I figured right. that third that well, in there. Well, yeah. I I did psychedelic is you know psychedelic music was was one of my descriptors here because there's definitely some aspect of that a, a raga or droning sound as well. Um, so there's looping stuff going on here, so I can tell there's a lot of stuff happening in the studio. I'm hearing free jazz in a couple of places, just like there's these horns yeah. going off. So there is a, a another one of these albums that we're covering in these cold listens that just has a lot of stuff going on, and um, it's hard to really come up with something. You know, I, I think I liked it. It was certainly interesting and different and unique. And um, you know, for the for the what what I say it was 1974. I mean. <laughs> uh yeah it, it it definitely seems ahead of its time um and actually i do have a pink floyd note on here i thought that um was it the fourth track alifib um yeah seemed Alifib. like a sound like a little bit like of uh piper at the gates of dawn era pink floyd kind of stuff going on there at the beginning um i, I had that note on so hmm. so yeah it was he's it's it's a lot of keys piano driven synth stuff um 
you know, some high-pitched vocals that were interesting. I heard some, um, you know, there's like keyboard whistles. I, there's there's sounds. I'm just trying to figure out where is this coming from? What instrument is making this? Um, you know, I, I, there was something that sounded like an accordion on the last track, <laughs> Little Red Robin Hood Hit the Road. But um, but it, but I, but I'm listening to it going, I think these are actually strings trying to mimic an accordion. So it just, uh, yeah. So I, anyway... I, I liked it. I, I don't know if I can even just say much more. I think that I need to listen to this more. Um, you know, uh, he's, I, I couldn't tell sometimes. I think Alfie was a little bit of an eerie song and I, there was some speaking going on. But again, I'm like, is this English? I, I can't really tell what they're saying or what's going on. So there's a lot of confusion. Um, but there was still enough in this that was going on that made me interested in it um that i thought was kind of that sounded good that was palatable at least um so uh yeah it piqued my curiosity i would i'm, I'm, inter I'm interested in who this guy is and what his history is and all the stuff i have i didn't really do any research at all even after listening so um yeah i think i like it but i can't really give you more than that it's just it's just it's interesting enough to make you go okay this is worth going back to give it some more listens so yeah yeah, I wanted to give this album a rock bottom because I did not like it at all. And what? and it uh it's clearly like kraut rock, noise rock okay. inspired, yep. I think. Um he's I didn't British. think of that, but I think you're right. Yeah. I think he's British because I picked up his British accent at the very beginning. It's it's kind of like a mixture. I mean, it's art rock too in a way, that generic umbrella term, but it's it's a little proggy there's synth in it there's piano his high-pitched voice did nothing for me i, I really kind of didn't like his singing at sometimes he sings just the sounds instead of actual lyrics um yeah. if that makes sense and uh it's it's jazzy too so I, he's trying to do all of all of these things at once and this album you can't even really it's hard to really describe a a cope not a coherent, a consistent sound throughout because he's constantly changing it up. And um, I would describe it also as as kind of haunting and ethereal at times. It's definitely discordant um, and not in the way that Can was that I liked um, and just kind of everything I don't like about this type of sound in this genre of music. It's like if there's a line, it's kind of on the other side of the line of the, of doing the things that they do in this, in this type of area of music. And uh, it's honestly, it's already like left my head. I can't pick, <laughs> pick something out or remember what's, what songs sounded like just because there's so much going on after again, only one listen, but. Yeah, it was it was not it was not an enjoyable. It was my least favorite album um, hmm. of all of these of these that we listened to. I this is one of the hardest albums for me to categorize because I don't even know what my this is an impossible <laughs> album to listen to once and yeah, totally yeah. this album haunted me this week. It stayed. Parts wow. of it stuck with me in my subconscious a little bit. I had it on headphones, right? And I listened to it in deep in the evening. Mm -hmm. And as I listened to it initially, I had some reflections that 
kind of are some some basic ones that I'll go into that you guys didn't touch on. Number one, he sings in a very British accent that that is like um, kind of like the Kinks a little bit, or as yeah. definitively as British as some of those Brit pop mm-hmm. bands later, where like you know a British person is singing, you know, big. Big vowels, big British accent, not the formal British accent either. Like more like, if you know that, you know, the kind of that like real, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you know, like sounding stuff. And I, I don't want to do. But so as a result, it's it's one of the few albums we've heard that has that level of Britishness to it. Right. So that stands mm-hmm. out. Um, this dabbles in a. My other thing was it dabbles in a lot of things that I know you guys said it, it sounds ahead of its time. I don't know if this sounds ahead of its time because it sounds like a lot of the things that were in this time. Like uh-huh. I, that's when I later found out that Nick Mason produces, it made sense because it does sound like the early Pink Floyd albums yep. is the first thing that's I true. thought about. It's got the space of the ambient music. Like Brian Eno, right? Like there's a ton of space in this album mm-hmm. that's just existing with at times uncomfortable stuff coming and butting against it. And at times stuff that you're kind of like, is there a, something going on here? You know, because it's like it's just open space, right? And that is a little bit like the Krautrock at times too. I didn't hear it as much like the Krautrock. To me it was a, a lot more like um, – like the the prog oh but the prog type sounding just a more oh, instead of overplaying stuff like some of the prog rock artists had that habit of um stuffing everything they could into a track right like it's like what if you take the progressive mindset but you it's like kind of like what wire did with punk right like what if we took this sparse music and made it sparser right i mm-hmm. think like robert wyatt's was what if we took this prog rock and infused it with ambient music. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and that's what I, at first my take was, I said, this is like kind of what happens if you take prog rock and said, how can we every once in a while short hmm. circuit the ideas with space, you know, and kind of do that, which is anytime you're dealing with lots of space in an album, it's a tougher sell for me because it's not my comfort zone. I like stuff that catches my attention and space can sometimes make me uncomfortable with the album but i couldn't get past the fact that like parts of this album just kept like coming back (laughs) into my brain and like going back to sea song it's a very interesting chorus i actually put it in the montage it it sounds like it's going to be this melodic chorus and then it doesn't commit to being melodic <laughs> at the end, which sort of describes everything, right? Like, yeah. here's this chorus, and you're like, okay, now he's going to frame it with this surprisingly melodic chorus, and then it just doesn't go there. It just stops, and he yanks it away, kind of. Like, nope, not going to give you that. I'm going to trail off instead and give you more space. And so, as a result, this is a this is a definite in-the-middle review for me because... I can't say I hate this album like, you know, Josh didn't like it. I, I definitely didn't dislike it. Yeah. I can't say I love this album either because no. I'm still trying to figure – it's not something I'm going to go back and listen to all the time. It's not like mood music for me in the way that certain things that are a little bit more challenging are. Um, but it, it was very interesting. And once again, like this whole week, it was like Fela Kuti sounds – like he makes interest. Let me find out more about this guy. What's going on with Neil Young? I I constantly found myself being interested in like who we we're covering this week, right? And and with this one, I was like, okay, so what's this deal? This guy's deal. You know what I mean? Like, what's where's he coming from? Because 
everybody else who's like I was familiar with Kraut Rock, right? I was familiar with Brian Eno yeah. and Brian Ferry and all of the people doing the music, but like Robert Wyatt, like I don't know this name as well. Like he I don't even have like for all I knew, I was gonna be listening to like, you know, mainstream pop music with this, which mm-hmm. this certainly wasn't. And the the story of this is that Robert Wyatt was in this band called Soft Machine. Um, and he broke off from it and he was, uh, the drummer of the band. And so he, I guess he'd li- been living a little bit wild and stuff. And he was engaged to be married and he was at a party and he fell out of a window and was paralyzed from the waist down Jeez. at about the midway point of the album. So the first, like the beginning of the album was done before the accident and the second oh. half was done after the accident. And interestingly enough, he said that, of course, while something like that affected how the album was made, the album is not like a result of like, you know, like reflection kind of on the accident. Right. Like he Mm -hmm. said, it's more of like um, uh, like his direct quote was he said that the material was not a direct result of the accident and the recuperation. It's more just the the music sort of like was about lots of themes in his life of which that was one, which seems incredibly hard to believe like (laughs) how this sounds and also called rock bottom. Right. And stuff. But I mean, I got to take the artist's word for it. Right. But that's the context of this. Yeah. He was making this album and it also left him not being able to play the drums. So here's a drummer and he's reinventing himself. Right. You know, as a, as a solo artist. Um, so that was interesting. Um, huh. I thought, yeah, like in, in terms of a thing, a, like a narrative that could be different stuff. But yeah, the other thing that became really fascinating about this is I guess at Raider right after this album, like he was like a cult figure and I guess he just decided to cover I'm a Believer by the Monkees and like it became this like massive novelty hit in Great Britain that <laughs> went almost to the top of the charts and it's really like his one single and it's a cover of i'm a believer by the monkeys which like i had to check out right because i'm like what <laughs> what like would that sound like filtered yeah. it like it's kind like kind of and not at all at mm. the same time if that makes sense i'll try to find it and is it is it better it than the smash mouth version he did perform it on top of the pops to keep a narrative right here which yeah. i also thought was interesting i think that's what i'm gonna post uh <laughs> no it, it does not share similarities with like kind of the smash mouth interpretation you know what i mean it's like yeah. it's its own thing and it's and at first i thought is it gonna be like william shatner singing stuff not like you know what i'm saying where it's <laughs> right, clearly yeah. derived to be no it's not really that it's like its own thing um Matt, I'm shocked you did not mention Radiohead because there's definite oh, yeah. callbacks no, right. to Radiohead yes. on this. Yes. I, I don't know if they were influenced, but like Sea Song, like in some of these songs, like that. Um, no, you're right. The fifth song, I mean, that like there are direct Radiohead tracks that I'm like, oh, God, this is in the same some, lane like, as that. Isn't there some backwards vocals in this too? Like on A Life like, or Ali Ife or whatever. I called. can't say for sure, but it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if that was the yeah. case. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh like on Alfie and stuff. There, there's stuff that easily could have been 
Radiohead stuff. So no, like, you're I, right. That's yeah. I don't have an excuse for that. I didn't. I don't know why I didn't think of that. You're absolutely right. And I know yeah. that we set, tend to drop certain bands too much, so I tried to stay away from it. But like we've referenced Radiohead a couple different times. To me, no album sounded more like Radiohead than this album. This <laughs> this was almost like not just cousins. This was like twin brothers at times to some of the stuff Radiohead's doing at certain points. So I don't know if they were influenced by this album. I find it almost impossible to believe that they hadn't heard this album before they made some of those albums. So I'll check that out. But um, even, even at the end, as I was getting on before here and just looking at stuff and not wanting to buy myself, it's funny because there's usually a description of like what Robert Criscow thinks of an album. He's usually got these really like very like point it takes right like one way or the other even he's kind of like baffled by this album as he's listening to it it was like he's like i'm not quite sure what to think about this album and i was <laughs> laughing i'm like i think that's the first time i've ever seen him not take a hard take on something so yes but matt uh he described it also as a combination of drones and songs yeah which i think is a good description of yeah. this album so yep yeah, so, yeah and i just found a and I just found a, uh, a an article. I just like Googled Robert Wyatt and Tom York for Radiohead. And, yeah, and, uh, Radiohead's uh, he's been, he's been t- an album, uh, an article after In Rainbows came out, and it said that Radiohead yeah. singer has been taking tips from Robert Wyatt. So. That's what that this, yeah. this sounded like In yeah. Rainbows. That's what I was referencing. Yeah, yeah. so no, you're I'm right. Glad that, I mean, it's it's. I'd like to credit myself with genius, but that I, that's not a real big leap, right there. No, I just yeah, out. if it didn't pop up. Another fun fact that I've seen in here: so that band um, that he was in, Soft Machine, they're still mm-hmm. around. Do you know who wow. was one of their first members? Not very long. Uh, Andy no. Summers from the, was the the police. From the police was a guitarist hmm. in. Well, I know Andy Summers is like ten years older than the other two guys in the yep. band, so that makes sense because like he could be in that genre, yeah. Because yeah. at first you think the police that doesn't overlap with the late, but then I remember Andy Summers is like ten years old. Yes. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Very but yeah. Apparently they're, they're they're still around. Apparently. I thought Matt yeah. when you said you Google it. Who's going to be like Robert Wyatt's Tom York's godfather or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he named his first child like Robert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Wyatt no, he, after, yeah. So, no yeah. but you're right. That's a good pickup there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, man. No, well, I like was, stuff like this. It's just when you listen to it the first time, that's why it's like impossible. Do yeah, I really I, like this? Is this just weird? Is this like, this? Am I, is this going to be a grower? You know, it's hard to. Yeah. But like I said, um, yeah. that neutral for me, I think, because I just would need to listen to this more and just figure out what my take is. But I am always glad we revisit albums like or visit. I shouldn't say re visit albums like this, because I do feel it begins to create tapestry for like the stuff we cover. And you're like, ooh, OK, now, um, you know, we're I won't get into Big Star right now because we're going to cover them later. But, you know, it's kind of one of these things that you can see where stuff comes from even if they didn't know at the time where it's coming from and i feel that's one of the cool things about these takes is that you can see stuff and go okay like even if other people don't know it like the people that we like or or were intriguing to us right we're listening to this stuff and i always like to hear where stuff came from so yeah yeah no yeah that makes that uh that makes sense and i can hear that in this album from what i remember but it, yeah, just doesn't appeal to me. I got so you. here's, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh-oh, Matt's doing a deep so dive I, right now. I, yeah. I just, I just, uh, this is an article in Spin. Uh, Tom York's twenty biggest influences on this <laughs> oh, list: Robert Wyatt, 
Fela Cootie and Neil Young. <laughs> uh, wow. wow. <laughs> How about that? Well, yeah. he's good. Well, Tom York, if you're listening, we made the, the episode for you. So, yeah. All you got to do is throw like craft work uh, on and you know, a couple other things, you know, and uh, I think we'll be set. So, that's yeah. amazing. That's wow. Funny. Not oh, on oh, and and Krautrock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, like I said, yeah. I, I I went to them for a reason, Matt. Like why it's there. I mean, it's this. This is like Tom York bingo. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Brian Eno's cards, but for like Tom York's yeah. brain. So yeah. So all right. Well, what better way to stop than what was it? The oblique strategies, right? Yeah, was there the name you go. Of it? Yeah. Which yeah. If I ever formed a band, by the way, it's uh, you can't really go with it because it's too on the news. But that's. You could do a lot worse for a band name than Oblique Strategies. Yeah. So I'm going to find some, maybe a, a fantasy football team one year will be Oblique Strategies. That's a good so, one. Yeah. So, well, with that being said, I think that puts a bow on this episode. We'll be coming back uh, in, a, a, I think, is it next week or the week after it, guys? I think two weeks, right? We're going to take a little hiatus, if I remember correctly. Or, Matt, are you going to be able to pull one together for us? No, I'm good. You're good? Okay, so we're going to be coming back next week with a regular episode. Do either of you guys happen to have uh, the albums that we're covering next week up? Yes, I have it up. Josh, you want to give us a rundown? Yes, I will be covering Super Tramp's Crime of the Century. Mm. First time band for us on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matt will be back to the boss with the... uh, famous born to run album our first proper <laughs> and, and, our first proper spring scene oh album. yeah sure oh, yeah and we've been getting a lot of uh youtube comments on our take <laughs> on the boss so yeah mm-hmm. okay and then we are in the kraut rock with Craftworks trans europa express oh. john will be covering that one i mean it was, it was a matter of time right mm-hmm. that's the one that's left over that we haven't covered so we will be complete us after this so yep so Four, three two. uh three uh seminal albums i would say mm-hmm. look forward to doing the research on all of those albums and hearing a little bit more but let's just go ahead and, and stop it right here uh for uh matt and josh this is john wishing you a great rest of the week and a lovely weekend thanks for listening to the combing the stacks podcast we're now available to be liked and followed on 10 unique platforms including anchor apple podcasts breaker Castbox, google podcasts Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Feedback is welcome at combingthestacks at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at the handle at combingthe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks. 